and it's not just the left, but people don't understand, like, that's the right, too. The destructive tasks that are purely destructive is is the nature of the fascist. They, they don't want to build something new. They don't want to figure out how these machines operate. They want to just charge ahead and just, um, uh, to quote Facebook, break things, um, just break shit um, and figure it out later. And I think, um, yes, yeah, so it's going to be a, re- a read. Um, but uh, I'll kick off because if you didn't realize, you are listening to the Deleuze and Lottery, a quarantine collective's ongoing reading of Andy Edwards' moon in chapter four and up for the first positive task of his analysis. Uh, that's about it. And I'm going to go and just dive in and start reading because we are on 322. I will share the uh, PDF in uh, if you want to uh, click on it and uh, listen away or read away as I go. I'm sharing inside of the chat. Off we go. The negative or destructive task of schizoanalysis is in no way separable from its positive task. All these tasks are necessarily undertaken at the same time. The first positive task consists of discovering in a subject the nature, the formation, or the functioning of his desiring machines, independently of any interpretations. What are your desiring machines? What do you put into these machines? What is the output? How does it work? What are your non-human sexes? What do you mean, are we backtracking, Jack? Hey, maybe it's just me. I've got a sound. Is it 326? Did we already make it through the beginning of this? I think so. <laughs> That's what I'm here for, Matt. Oh, damn it. Didn't we is leave off on... Uh, JK, you were here. Yeah. When it was the Mozart desiring machine and the ass thing. We yeah, did the Mozart. Uh, I think we're on 327, right? It's either 327 or 326. 327, the chain is like, because we did the body with organs is imminent substance in the Spinoza sense. You're right. Holy shit. Okay, so wait, we did two paragraphs three weeks ago. Wow. Um, oh my god. Hey, one of those paragraphs is a page long, man. Give us some credit. <laughs> uh, still. Alright, well then I'm gonna going to edit this out. I'm going to start at the chain is like the apparatus of transmission. <laughs> and we'll go with there. <clears throat> um, the chain is like the apparatus of transmission or of reproduction in the desiring machine, insofar as it brings together, without unifying or uniting them, the body without organs and the partial objects. The desiring machine is inseparable, both from the distribution of the partial objects on the body without organs and from the leveling effect exerted on the partial objects by the body without organs, which results in appropriation. The chain also implies another type of synthesis than the flows. It is no longer the lines of connection that traverse the productive parts of the machine, but an entire network of disjunction on the recording surface of the body without organs. Pardon me, I don't know what's with me. And... We have doubtless been able to present things in a logical order, where the disjunctive synthesis of recording seemed to follow after the connective synthesis of production, with a part of the energy of production, libido, being converted into recording energy, numen. But, in fact, from the standpoint of the machine itself and the flows, 
as well as the body without organs and the partial objects. I'm sorry. I will reread that. But in fact, from the standpoint of the machine itself, there is no succession that ensures the strict coexistence of the chains and the flows, as well as the body without organs and the partial objects. The conversion of a portion of the energy does not occur at a given moment, but is a preliminary and constant condition of the system. The chain is the network of included disjunctions on the body without organs, inasmuch as these disjunctions resect the productive connections. The chain causes them to pass over to the body without organs itself, thereby channeling or codifying the flows. However, the whole question is in knowing whether one can speak of a code at the level of this molecular chain of desire. We have seen that a code implied two things, one or the other, or the two together. On the one hand, the specific determination of the full body as a territoriality of support. On the other hand, the erection of a despotic signifier on which the entire chain depends. In this regard, in vain is the axiomatic in profound opposition to codes, since it works on the decoded flows. It cannot proceed, it cannot itself proceed, except by affecting re-territorializations and by reviving the signifying unity. The very notions of code and axiomatic therefore seem to be valid only for the molar aggregates, where the signifying chain forms a given determinate configuration on a support that is itself specifically determined, and in terms of the detached signifier. These conditions are not fulfilled without exclusions forming and appearing in the disjunctive network, at the same time as the connective lines take on a global and specific meaning. Pardon my fairly poor reading of that. <clears throat> I don't know why I'm coffee today. Um, previous paragraph, uh, and kind of building up to this point, has been talking about how uh, representation itself sort of is effective, uh, how it is made, how these things operate. Uh, I tend to see this as a decent critique of the signifying chain out of Lacan, given Guattari's background. I don't think I'm far off in that. Um, but this opening is talking about the nature of these signifying chains and how they work. Um, we are, as they talk about, not talking about something that necessarily even matters to the desiring machine as a thing. Um, but instead, this chain that sort of plays at a larger scale and deter is determinant of meaning in the aggregate, in the molar, in the representational. Um, we can go through it, and I think we will sort of a couple sentences at a time, but I wanted to kind of open with uh, if anyone has thoughts or comments or anything like that. But no, I, I like your point about how do we compare and contrast this with Lacan, right? Because I, I think you're raising a good point that at least when I think of Lacan, the use of signifiers in the signifying chain, it's really more at the, the molar level, right? Or at least there's that aspect with the socius that's involved in the primitive, right? Because at the, when they say we have seen that a code implied two things, one or the other, or the two together. On the one hand, the specific determination of the full body is a territoriality of support. On the other hand, the erection of despotic signifier, which the entire chain depends. And that latter bit, I mean, that, to me, that's really the Lacanian aspect of it, right? The, the master signifier, despot signifier. Mm -hmm. 
So it's interesting to have that kind of contrast getting brought up again in this paragraph, right? How do we understand the molar and the molecular, um, but more particularly the BWO and the socius in terms of the signifying chains? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a pretty great summary of, of this. Um, uh, and just as during the logic of sense reading that makes it, I always say it's difficult for me not to bring AO into this. I think it's hard for me not to bring logic of sense into this as we talk about uh, the chains of meaning and how sense is produced in logic of sense. And I think you're starting to see very much elements of that um, sort of come into a very particularized form that I think is, uh, I would say, refined and uh, really crisp, also a little bit more difficult to grasp, but very much in line with the way he's talking about it in logic of sense as well. The Specifically, uh, the chain also implies another type of synthesis than the flows. It is no longer the lines of connection that traverse the productive parts of the machine, but an entire network of disjunction on the recording surface of the body without organs. This, this network, this large-scale mesh of meaning that is, is generated and made on this recording surface, this element is ultimately where we're talking about these, uh, these chains sitting. Um, and he goes on to say, we have doubtless been able to present things in a logical order where the disjunctive synthesis of recording seemed to follow after the connective synthesis of production with a part of the energy production being converted into recording energy. But in fact, from the standpoint of the machine itself, the perspective of the machine itself, there is no succession that ensures the strict coexistence of the chains and the flows as well as the body without organs and the partial objects. The conversion of a portion of the energy does not occur at a given moment, but is a preliminary and constant condition of the system. I think this is really important because very often people try to break down, oh, there's these three syntheses, and it's like, well, we do that because we're, we're needing to break them down like how they operate and talk about their different you know, elements. But we are talking about something that is cons consistently running, that's constant and always going that is always outputting this and, and doing this conversion. It's not a conversion, cool, break time, and uh, like off the design machine goes to get coffee. It's from its perspective, that standpoint, there's no succession. It's continually going. A preliminary and constant condition of the system, as he says. Well, and I, I like your comparison logic in a sense, because I, I definitely recall this series of communication, right? And I mm -hmm. think chains come up in there. Uh, and it's, it, I think you're right, it is a similar point. The, the thing that really strikes me in Antiedipus is, um, I do think that's a, a, a crucial element in both, both texts, right? How do things communicate with each other, especially um, without relying on a, you know, without relying on English, uh, so to speak, right? Yep, um, and, and we've talked about you know the the glossmatics uh, and the different types of signification um, going on with the soci. Right, I think what's kind of interesting here is that this type of communication with the chains, and this is why I think the coding is important. You know, at one level, the connections are a condition for how things can communicate. Right, how desire and and, and uh, the machination will actually communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. At another level, what they actually do for the BWO, right? Whether they miraculate or repel, there's some level of how that stuff is going to function that plays into the communication, where it's almost like they're saying, um, 
you know, tacking on to some of these points, right? They're kind of adding this point that the way things function with each other is actually a form of communication as much as it is an actual, um, you know, as actual actions, as doing things, right? The, the uh, in, in logic of sense also, I will mention, um, because I think it's important, where he starts talking about the chains and the roles and the way it's set up is actually talking about the Oedipal series specifically. I mean, the, this comes back. It's, it's throughout a lot of, I mean, just in general, Deleuze's sort of works where we're talking about these internal resonances or the production of meaning, the production of how these things operate. Um, the, the reality of how they work at their base is that there is a constant sort of ongoing production instead of this idea of this sort of top-down representational, oh, we have our signification chain and here are the links and we can point them out. And that's where meaning comes from. It's instead much deeper and longer and constant, and it's and it's that setup that I think is the. Um, I, I I really like the wording here about that. Um, specifically though, uh, it's also I think one of the challenges with Lacan, and I've always read the chain of signification as being almost quite literally that um, a, a series of links, uh, like chain links. Um, that may go in a few directions, but it is it is generally a chain, a singular chain. And instead of that, the phrasing here around saying that it is instead a network of included disjunctions on the body without organs, and as much as these resect the productive connections, the chain causes them to pass over to the body, thereby channeling or codifying the flows. It, it is a network of these things. We're, we're no longer talking about one singular chain between two, but again, to go back to logic of sense, we're talking about a shit ton of uh, ultimately heterogeneous series that are interplaying with each other and, and generating meaning in that network effect, then generating all of these elements. Because again, this is where these disjunctions play, the, the included disjunctions sort of sit and how they operate and where they intersect with us. Well, this is, this is part of the fascination of it too, I think too, right? Because if if, if we're talking about the difference of signifiers and, and chains as DNG, think about it, right? I mean, that's kind of it, right? Is like the code is implying something a little bit differently than just the chain in itself, because I think part of what they're trying to highlight here, right? I mean, we're kind of, we're, we're going to skip a little bit of the middle of this paragraph to make this point, right? And that's okay. We can come back to it. But, you know, in terms of like the codifying the flows and that, I, th I think part of what they're raising is, right, we've seen that a code implied two things, one or the other, the two together. And I, th I think what they're kind of getting at here before walking into the axiomatic is, like, with the chains and the inclusive disjunction, right, that speaks to something altogether different than an exclusive disjunction that may be necessary for codes. Right? Yeah. That's kind of, I think, oh, how God, we start yeah. to get the... The difference between what's going on with the BWO versus what's going on with them, uh, with the socius, well, and, or at and least I would, with the I molecular. Would, I would even go further. I think the again his harping on inclusive disjunction as this sort of base, and how exclusive disjunctions sort of play from this. But this this sort of base layer, I think, helps us understand um, 
life is filled with contradictions. We believe weird shit that is contradictive of other things we believe. And we have a sense of things that, that work against the sense we have of other things. And it's, how do we have paradoxes? Like all of this. And again, not that I'm going back to logic of sense, but very specifically just these phrasing that he keeps going back to inclusive disjunction as a thing. Uh, the essence of an inclusive disjunction is uh, two heterogeneous series, two things that don't necessarily go together or operate with different uh, spheres of logic, their own sort of spheres of meaning. Uh, they don't have a shared reality, but the connection of them and that that's allowed. That's where we start hitting the inclusive disjunction. These things maybe don't seem to go together, but now they do, they connect versus the exclusive, which do have a shared logic and kind of actually almost fall in line uh, uh, with each other uh, as we will get into. And as we have been getting into the, the nature of these disjunctions versus each other, I think, is itself a fascinating sort of, a, I, I think, a fascinating breakdown and one of the things that um, I really like about the way he phrases it here. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, right? Because, like, at, at some level, I can almost imagine exclusive disjunctions getting repelled. Um, and it's so interesting is what do the inclusive disjunctions do with the BWR, right? I mean, part of this process of recording is something uh, really interesting, right? Because I think what we're starting to get is, you know, the, the disjunctions help form the territorialities that result, right? The zones on the BWL most specifically. And that, that's important because not only does that give you the recording element, but that gives you like, I mean, in terms of zone, right? That's, there's like three different parts to, to the second synthesis, right? There's the, the functionalism of it, the recording of it, and I think the way that the intensities are not only um, happening here, but distributed, right? Yes. Well, I'm, so um, I want to read just a paragraph from um, <clears throat> probably the best source I've used throughout these readings outside of <clears throat> Holland is uh, Anarchist Without Content, um, worth Googling. Um, uh, has a huge piece on the inclusive disjunction and connectivity and its relationship to the lose. Um, very particularly, I'll copy the link here because the whole essay is worth uh, reading. But um, speaking about how cities work in the metropolis, um, inclusive disjunction gives the metropolis a categorically different relationship to difference. It spatializes difference, which allows the metropolis to outmaneuver the traditional politics of difference, such as liberal freedom or multiculturalism. This is why many metropolitan spaces expand without what appears to be a pre-given pattern or rule, such as Third Italy or Australia's Gold Coast. The primary strategy of the metropolis is thus to diffuse differences through inclusion rather than confront them through antagonism. Within this system of inclusion, difference is not a threat, but the means by which contemporary power maintains a hold on the perpetual present. The effect of this temporal modulation is that historical time disappears as contemporary events themselves retreat into a remote and fabulous realm of unverifiable stories, uncheckable statistics, unlikely explanations, and untenable reasoning. The accelerated speed of media increasingly makes networked media, such as the internet, a breeding ground for conspiracy and insinuation, as the sheer volume of participants and incredible speed of information accumulation means that in the time it takes to put one conspiratorial theory to bed, the raw material for many more will have already begun circulating. That 
the nature of this and how it plays with difference, obviously being a central thing of uh, Deleuze. He wrote a book uh, kind of about that, um, and it's kind of core to everything. Um, the the nature of inclusive versus exclusive and being able to spot these differences is where we start seeing, and I think, I, I don't I, to me, this is where we start seeing our positive task, honestly, um, because we've been breaking down the machines, how they work. This is what the negative task is, the destruction of representation and the understanding of what actually is going in, what the machines actually do, what actually is the output. Um, but as we start getting to the positive task, it is about seeing these this difference in exclusive versus inclusive disjunction, how we play with that, how we set up with that. And here is, I think, a really great breakdown of how they operate. <clears throat> and welcome, Sunday. If you want, I'm happy to unmute you. Um, you're unmuted now. You have to mute yourself, though, in Discord. Oh, am I muted? There you go. Now you're muted. Um, <clears throat> anyway, I, I, I do think that that phrasing is great. The next sentence he goes into, it says, uh, however, the whole question is in knowing whether one can speak of a code at the level of this molecular chain of desire. We have seen that a code implied two things, one or the other, or the two together. On the one hand, the specific determination of the full body as a territoriality of support. On the other, the erection of a despotic signifier on which the chain depends as the nature of meaning at this point. This is a very much also logic of sense. Without going back there, worth joining that reading. A few of you I are have. It's a it's a great bit. Um, the, the the he's outlining here one of the big questions. The if we're talking about codes, if we're talking about flows, where do the codes happen? How do we actually spot them? How do we speak of a co codified desire at this point? This very very deep point. Um, we really can't, to be frank. And he goes, in this regard, in vain is the axiomatic in profound opposition to codes. Since it works on decoded flows, it cannot itself proceed, except by affecting re-territorializations and reviving the signifying unity. The very notions of code and axiomatic, therefore, seem to be valid only for molar aggregates, where the signifying chain forms a given determinate configuration on a support that is itself specifically determined and in terms of a detached signifier. Um, ah, sometimes the writing is so dense and it's tough to get through it. Um, when we talk about codes, the codification of desire, when we talk about the axiomatics, the rules of things, they don't apply at this level. They're, they're just simply not valid. Um, they're representational, essentially. Um, when we start getting down to desires, we can't talk of them in a codified way. We can't talk about machines in a codified way. They, these things only work at the molar. They only work at this way in the large-scale space of representation and solar rea uh, social realities. Um, because ultimately, the signifying chain, the network of meaning that is generated, that gives the power to code and axiomatic, is itself actually built on its own sort of signification. Um, Deleuze has a fantastic section in the early parts of Logic of Sense where he starts breaking down uh, the three parts of any proposition. Um, as, as, as you break down the three parts of the propositions and you're discussing it, um, you hit kind of a weird point where you have the manifestation of who's speaking and how. 
um, underneath the way that that sort of operates, you run into a challenge that ultimately it's insistent on, um, it's insistent on knowing that sort of outright almost, I don't know how else to put it. Um, Jack, do you know, are you following what I'm saying here? Um, because yeah, I, I, I do think like you're trying to apply like manifestation, right? Well, I mean, it's, it's the three, it's the three elements of it. He talks about mm -hmm. this sort of nature of, uh, denotation itself. Signification goes on forever. Uh, the I'm trying to find the specific section where he kind of talks about this sort of, uh, infinite thing. Um, signification inside of any sentence is ultimately, uh, about a truth condition. Um, is, am, is the signifier the thing that we're talking about? Is it uh, the element, the premise or conclusion of a demonstration, including probabilities and promises. And we use the truth condition to say yes or no. The problem is any signification that utilizes the truth condition is also then predicated on that truth condition itself having a signification that is itself then predicated on that signification having a truth condition kind of goes on forever. And so because of that, the ability for us to actually talk about anything in what it is in any imminent moment, it disappears really quickly because all of these things are then necess necessi necessitating us discussing a massive chain of all of these things. Um, the, these challenges um, kind of come to the front when we're talking to people, when we're discussing, hey, well, what's the real problem with society? Any any signification we may use is ultimately kind of sure it's coded axiomatized, but that can only ever exist inside of the post subject world inside of the social space inside of the large molar aggregate. We can't talk about code and axiomatic smaller than that because it simply can't apply. It necessitates signification from elsewhere in that molar aggregate. So things break down pretty fast. That's how I read this last part, and that's kind of my explanation. I hope it makes sense. This is not an easy one, um, but I do love the phrasing around this. Go for it, Jack. Yeah, to expand on that, right? So the axiomatic is the the tricky thing, right? That's where they 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 have to say, right? In this regard, in vain is the axiomatic in profound opposition to codes, since it works on the decoded flows. It cannot itself proceed except by affecting re-territorializations and by reviving the signifying unity. The very notion of code and axiomatic therefore seem to be valid only for the molar aggregates where the signifying chain forms a given determinate configuration on a support that is itself specifically determined and in terms of a detached signifier. These conditions are not fulfilled without exclusions forming and appearing in the disjunctive network, at the same time as the connective lines taken on global and specific meaning, right? So I think kind of what I'm getting out of this is that the interesting thing about the axiomatic is it does seem to do a lot of the decoding work, right? Because it seems to basically condition um, dx and dy uh, and basically in doing that, right, it's conditioning the kind of gloss maddens that capital associates enables, right? And that's basically the, basically it's the destruction of codes, right? Correct. 
the interesting thing is here then they're saying that but nonetheless it also conditions recoding right re-territorializations and so this is kind of the interesting thing is right how do we how do we get at this point about why why does this happen the molecular versus the molar right or well i guess since we're talking associated the molar instead of the molecular and it's because it relies on the exclusive disjunction right yes um, that's kind of a fascinating thing about it right is even though it's the this problem of decoding in that uh capital still enables this recoding problem so like as much as it's dealing with signifiers and signifieds even when it enables the figures to destroy um to destroy that stuff really it nevertheless brings it back yes well and it's and it's the the phrasing here it's the last sentence which i really love which is um because he's talking about the conditions uh that uh, form and enable um the axiomatic and codification recodification these conditions are not fulfilled without exclusions forming and appearing in the disjunctive network at the same time as the connective lines take on a global and specific meaning there is a it almost uh, I, I won't say centered around the subject but it's it's not wildly different than that i think the phrasing is wrong there is a reality in the way that we deal with things as the exclusions form and appear in the disjunctive network that is the BWO generally, but at the same time, sort of as those things pass through us or connect, by nature, they're taking on their global specific meanings within the social sort of strata. And so you have this really interesting setup that's taking place where without the, inclus the exclusive disjunction uh, that enables that large, massive sort of open network of meaning, um, as I was talking about with the anarchist with content talked about conspiratorial realities um, all the way through to kind of whatever's needed the that setup that empowers this global and specific meaning out the other side is kind of the whole point of this book because this is how fascism works like this is the inner fascist I would say is this is starting to hint at that inner fascist as a thing yeah I mean this is where how do the socius and BWO affect each other, right? Especially if the BWO is the limit of capital as socius, right? Mm -hmm. And we go back to that problem of how do you break through the wall, right? Rather than break down. And I think that's kind of the interesting thing that, that you're starting to highlight is, you know, they call it the disjunctive network. And I think they do that to highlight that there's two regimes, right? The molar and the molecular. Easy enough right there. But I mean, I think that's that's part of how you get a construction of fascism is the disjunctive network has these inclusive disjunctions, right, happening at the molecular level. But you've also got the exclusive happening at the molar level, right, and the conditions for the re-territorialization that's going on. It's really interesting that they're focusing on re-territorialization re and recoding here. Usually we get more like the deterritorializing with capital here. They're well, and they're it's, kind of um, shifting the focus for a minute. Well, and it's, and it's a hyper sort of connected thing. And there's a, um, again, I highly recommend the Anarchist Without Content piece. It's one of my favorites on literally like the next four paragraphs. Um, it's super important um, because their reading of it, I think, is very solid because it's um, the idea of everything connecting and being able to have any meaning like is not necessarily a good thing. Um, this idea of being in a hyperconnected world or, or all of that 
it, connection itself isn't necessarily good. Neither is uh, a disconnection. Like none of these things have sort of that nature. It's just understanding how the machines operate. And that's the other half of this. And I want to read before we get going because it kind of starts coming up uh, to what you're talking about and the next paragraph. I'm going to read a little bit more from uh, Anarchist Without Content. I'm going to post the specific paragraph in um, the Discord. Um, Resistance to connectivity may require the other side of disjunction, exclusive disjunction, the forced choice between two options. What exclusive disjunction offers is a path for evading the capture as just another difference. The first obstacle to exclusive disjunction is liberal pluralism, which is so deeply intertwined with the politics of difference that the very notion of exclusivity may be a tough pill for some to swallow. Forced choice is not the enemy of difference, however, as it does not reduce the world to a simple binary. There are certainly moments of exclusive disjunction that should remain the cause of intense political suspicion, such as the transphobic claim that masculinity and femininity are exclusive. Exclusive disjunction does not force a choice between two homogenous forms. Rather, it intensifies whatever incommensurability exists between worlds of difference. On each side of a network, on each side of a multiplicity. This is how Deleuze and Guattari can simultaneously affirm a thousand tiny sexes and that all radical gender politics begins through becoming woman. In fact, the illusion that there is only one possible world is a lie perpetrated in the metropolis to maintain a perpetual present. Exclusion's difference, making potential only, appears paradoxical from the perspective of pluralistic liberalism. One begins instead from the perspective that the difference of the metropolis is a repetition of the same, that exclusivity simply clarifies the difference between reform and revolution. To put it suggestively, but crudely, instead of convergence culture that puts everything into communication, exclusive disjunction seeks a divergence culture that spins things off to pursue their own paths. There are already instances of this diversion, divergence, as seen in various subcultures of glitch and noise, but they do not politicize incompatibility. It is thus post-colonialism that should be our guide, as it has already politicized the incommensurable and has laid a blueprint for global delinking. There's a fucking amazing paragraph. As we get going through the rest of this, do keep this generally in mind. The way that they're thinking about this, the way that they're talking about this, is not necessarily what you may presume as being, oh, this is, connecting is good, this is good, inclusive is good, exclusive is bad, or whatever it may be. Um, we've had those people uh, talk to us before. They've shown up on the server. I've had those discussions. This is much different. This is a different way of thinking about how difference is sort of made and how meaning is made through these different elements. I really love that paragraph. I hope it made sense to everyone. Um, um, and I'll give everyone a moment. Any questions, thoughts on this paragraph before we move on to the next one? Any last thoughts, Jack, before we move on? Because we're going to move on to the, uh, the molecular chain is next. Well, I, can't, I can't comment on, on that because I've, I've read the work, but I, th I think we've done a pretty nice job of sketching out a lot of what this paragraph is going over, right? Because we, mm -hmm. we really need that difference between the two regimes to understand how the two disjunctions um, affect each other. Mm -hmm. And are particularly the conditions for each disjunction, right? Whether it's the the BWO or the Socius, right? Yes. 
All right, I will go to the next paragraph. This one's a... <sighs> molecular is a lot more difficult to talk about because um, most of our life is spent in the, the molar. Molecular is a different beast. This is fun. So let's do it. <sighs> but it is another case altogether with the properly molecular chain. Insofar as the body without organs is a nonspecific and nonspecified support that marks the molecular limit of the molar aggregates, the chain no longer has any other function than that of deterritorializing the flows and causing them to pass through the signifying wall, thereby undoing the codes. The function of the chain is no longer that of coding the flows on a full body of the earth, the despot or capital, but on the contrary, that of decoding them on the full body without organs. It is a chain of escape and no longer a code. The signifying chain has become a chain of decoding and deterritorialization, which must be apprehended and can only be apprehended as the reverse of the codes and the territorialities. This molecular chain is still signifying because it is composed of signs of desire, but these signs are no longer signifying. Given the fact that they are under the order of the included disjunctions, where everything is possible. These signs are points whose nature is a matter of indifference, abstract machinic figures that play freely on the body without organs, and as yet form no structured configuration, or rather, they form one no longer. As Jacques Minaud said, we must conceive of a machine that is such by its functional properties, but not by its structure, quote, where nothing but the play of blind combinations can be discerned. End quote. It is precisely the ambiguity of what the biologists call a genetic code that enables us to understand this kind of situation. For if the corresponding chain effectively forms codes, inasmuch as it folds into exclusive molar configuration, it undoes the codes by unfolding along a molecular fiber that includes all the possible figures. Similarly, in Lacan, the symbolic organization of the, st of the structure with its exclusions that come from the function of the signifier, has, as its reverse side, the real inorganization of desire. Now well, there's your Lacan tie-in, right? It's once again, like, Lacan sees what we're talking about. It's just that we don't want to, we want to lose focus of the, uh, the molecular for the molar, right? Yep. They're so good at those little moves of, like, you know, he, Lacan sees it too. It's just, there are these things in the way. The Jacques Minaud line, I really love, um, because I think the line specifically here, we are talking about um, that molecular pre-subject machinic unconscious, the machine where nothing but the play of blind combinations can be discerned. This is what we need to be considering when we talk about the molecular, that there is no... Structure as a stage where every, there's actors, uh, such as in Lacan, where we have a, a language of organization, um, but instead that our unconscious operates like the Minot line here, uh, that is such by its functional properties, but not by its structure, which is a strange way to talk about a machine, but I think a really brilliant way to put it. Because that's when we talk about machines, a lot of people go, oh, um, Oh, okay. I, I I totally get it. I I see how machines are built. I've seen them before, and it's like I don't know. Pull back, pull back. <laughs> this this is not that. Is functional properties of a machine. 
but not the structure of one. That's a, it's just a, such a great line. Um, again, the molecular is difficult to sort of apprehend because of that, but it's a, it's a great set of phrasing. Good paragraph, actually. Go for it, JK. Yeah, for clarification, would you say there are two chains, um, the, mo uh, the molar chain and the molecular chain? And the first paragraph we read this morning is, is pretty much uh, is talking about the molar chain. And this paragraph is uh, talking about the molecular chain. I'm, I'm always hesitant to say that they, they literally are talking about two individual things. I think it's instead, um, it's a, it, it's a gradient between the molar and the molecular. It's a, they overlap in a lot of places. There's a lot of, I can't tell where I begin in the social world ends kind of thing. The, they go through a lot of this where they talk about uh, the wasp and uh, the orchid as an example of not knowing where one ends and the other begins. Is the wasp becoming orchid? Is the orchid becoming wasp? Is the molecular becoming molar? Is the molar becoming molecular? These things are ultimately the same. Um, all the molar is, is the aggregate collective meta of the underlying desiring machines. So there's one chain-ish network that's kind of there, but they they work at different layers. Um, right. I'm always hesitant to use science, uh, any sort of allegory for it, but I think um, specifically, and I hate doing this, but the, the way quantum physics is talked about, and I think the general consensus around it is that we live in Newtonian space where things kind of just work according to Newtonian physics. It's great, but those things break down at the very large or the very small. Does that mean that there is another reality at the very large or very small? No, that's our reality. And those rules are us just like at the very large, the Newtonian still applies, but it applies very tiny. It's, it's still one whole thing. The molar molecular is still one thing, but we're talking about kind of two, the, the two regimes. Um, sure. And that's, if that makes sense. Right, right. If we think of it in Lacanian terms, would it, would it be that the, um, the molar and the molecular chains are just uh, part of the, um, the symbolic order? And yeah, I would say for, for Lacan, there is literally the one chain. Um, right. Right. There's just the one. As, again, this is my reading, and I'm, I'm, I'm a moderate idiot when it comes to Lacan for the most part. Um, right, right. But uh, yeah, no, he's got the one and it's got the master signifier that's kind of on one end as a stake that sort of holds the chain in place. Um, and we have our symbolic sort of unconscious that is the links that sort of get put in place by that and they lay out and sort of crystallize around it. Um, and I think that's a big play here is them very much, and this is a very Guattari paragraph, um, that laying out not so much for us that these things uh, play, it's different. Uh, the, this molecular chain is still signifying because it is composed of signs of desire, but the signs no longer signify, which is an interesting phrasing because the chain itself overall still signifies to us. It tells us, oh, um, uh, dad, he's talking about his dad, uh, maybe. Like the chain has a meaning. Uh, to go to logic of sense, we'd say the heterogeneous series, uh, that the two that go together, they get united under a new thing, that new series, boom, there it is, the meaning. This is that, this is dad. But the individual bits in the molecular, they don't have meaning. They don't, they don't have, like they're not signifying. 
the individual signs don't have a, oh, dad is made up of man and strong and this, which, which is very much the Lucanian sort of setup. Uh, this is much more, well, the chain has a meaning, but not the pieces. The pieces are broken little parts and partial objects and machines that are producing it. It's, there's a lot of stuff happening meaning-wise, but the signs don't signify. Because at this point, and this is the other side that is um, really interesting. At this point, they are in a place where included disjunctions are the thing, where everything is possible, where two seemingly inconsistent logical worlds can be slammed together perfectly fine. I mean, do it in your head. It's real easy. The paradox exists, super simple. And so as such, we, that the signs themselves are meaningless. They can mean anything. They come from wherever. Any connection can be made, blah, blah, blah. The overall chain, ah, that's a different beast. So that signifies, and that's a different setup because we have to think about what's beyond that chain. And that's the Jacques Minaud quote um, where ultimately we need to talk about inside the machine on the other side of it where nothing but the play of blind combinations can be discerned. This is the thing they're pushing us towards. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that, that works. That's not bad. I, I, I like that analysis. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, thanks. That's... Uh, anyone else? Jack? Uh, oh, Mrs. Marksy, welcome back. And uh, if you'd like to say anything, you're welcome to. Also, you're free to just listen. That's uh, always good to see you. Um, Anything else here, or uh, should I jump jump forward a bit? I guess kind of piggybacking on that. I I think it helps if you, in their terms, right? It's codes versus chains. And I think that's kind of the big move, because if you notice in that last paragraph, they shift a little bit more to focus on re-territorialization, um, especially because the, and thereby recoding, right? especially because the axiomatic plays a hand in that. This is kind of one of the weird problems of the book is like, if capital has this potentiality for decoding and deterritorialization, right? This kind of schizophrenic aspect. Um, why this delirium of re-territorialization and recoding? Uh, and one of the major reasons for that is the way the, axiom, the axiomatic functions, right? Um, as we're seeing here, because I think one of the main points they're trying to hit uh, in that difference, and why the why the BWO marks this kind of um, this limit for the socios, right, is that with that reterritorialization, right, what's basically happening is capital, um, insofar as we're talking about capital as the socios only, is basically facilitating a breakdown. So it's really interesting, right? As much as there's a deterritorialization with the figures, there's a re-territorialization that facilitates this breakdown. And I think this is related to that limit of the BWO because the difference being that the BWO seems to affect um, its own deterritorialization and decoding, right? Not the level of code per se, but of the level of chain, because what the chain does is it seems to it seems to effectively be what pushes through, uh, the breakthrough in the, uh, well, it's really at the breakthrough of the wall, right? It pushes um, into the molecular, or, or I think they even call it the micromolecular at one point, right? Because this is what it, I, I guess to put a word on it, 
it facilitates the escape. Yep. Um, I would, I would go another step. I would say one of the interesting plays that's happening here as well uh, with that is the nature of this sort of networked, anything is possible, inclusive disjunction at the very molecular being codified through some semblance of exclusive disjunction, but that itself being coded through the axiomatics of decoding the, the social structure that sort of exists. And so you end up with a very interesting sort of machine altogether where um, anything is possible, sort of, but that anything is possible trough of where anything is possible is so deeply conditioned by the axiomatics encoding that even a decoded version of it ultimately is just specifically in a very certain direction. There's kind of an amazing thing that happens where it's not so much that we have, you know, uh, beaten into us or carved into us that I am a man and a hunter, which may have happened in prehistory, um, or that I have a king telling me that I am a shoemaker. But instead, I have this weird feeling that I'm free to do anything. Anything's possible. Good Lord. I mean, look at capitalism and the American dream, and, and I can do anything. But that anything itself is, is deeply put in a, I can do anything, but I'm conditioned to work this job and do this thing. <laughs> So um, this axiomatic and how it operates on that and then plays within that, we're starting to see where we can, oh, well, where would the break be? Well, it wouldn't be in the unconscious, actually, um, which I think would be a push, big push for them. It's not so much in directly the unconscious or anything is possible. It's We do that, and then it's conditioned by the BWO and uh, representation, and then out the other side comes this weird trough that anything is possible because everything's decoded again, but it's decoded through this axiomatic and the axiomatic is fucking brutal and is able to do all the job of the old carving into the body or the old repression in itself without having to have code. And so as such, it's able to utilize our powers of combination and the ability that the human mind has to have anything be possible for its own ends. And it's this meta thing that's happening that is taking advantage of that. And this is where we start talking about the positive moment. Where can we insert ourselves? Not to break down anymore, because we've done that first. We've talked about figuring out where the people's machines are, what's actually going in, what's actually coming out. But now it's a question of, well, the positive task would be building something. Where in here can we actually find this moment where we can actually play with these codes and do something that truly goes sideways and in a different direction rather than just the oddly conditioned axiomatized desire that capital allows. And this is where I think you, you know, this point about release and that it does kind of get at the classic Freudian idea of, um, or rather their point about uh, escape kind of gets at the classic idea of releasing, right? One, one thing that strikes me is that, um, you know, this last bit, right? It is precisely the ambiguity of what the biologists call a genetic code that enables us to understand this kind of situation. For if the corresponding chain effectively forms codes, inasmuch as it folds into exclusive molar configurations, then does the codes by unfolding along a molecular fiber that includes all the possible figures. Similarly, in the con, the symbolic organization of the structure with its exclusions that form the function of the signifier, has as its reverse side the real or inorganization of desire. 
you know, I, I think this, the simple thing they're kind of getting at, right, is that as much as the axiomatic um, conditions a deterritorialization and thereby a reterritorialization through an exclusive disjunction, or rather through exclusive disjunctions, right, by basically um, changing the disjunctive network, right, changing the exclusions uh, basically available. I suppose is the easy way to say it, right? As much as it does that, there is the strangeness of, right, the seeming potential for a breakthrough that is nevertheless um, stymied, right? So this is kind of the molecular problem. I, I think this is a, a large amount of the delirium. The other side of the delirium is the limit, right? The BWL, because uh, when they write, as much as it folds into exclusive molar configurations, right? So codes are formed at the molecular level through into exclusive disjunctions. It undoes the codes by unfolding along a molecular fiber that includes all the possible figures. And then they use the comparison with Lacan, right? Because I think the interesting thing is that when the BWO can release, I think, or facilitate the escape of these disjunctions, um, it's really quite fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I adore it. All the possible figures, right? Well, it starts Something shifting. That... It shifts. It shifts how coding works against the axiomatic. And again, uh, to go back to the anarchist without content piece, which I love, it's it's the exclusive disjunction actually allows a divergent culture where the inclusive disjunction is able to put everything together in a big pot and say, "Hey, all of this is my thing." And there's a the, that that exceptional, interesting bit of how difference plays in both of those versions through this process. Again, um, I want to get to the next paragraph because we start really getting into a lot of what you're talking about too, especially with Newman, uh, which is um, about um, the sort of decoded flows of, of libido. I think there's a lot of really fun stuff, again, towards Freud and towards a lot of this that they're interesting there's some interesting phrases. They even have two sentences or one at least in the next paragraph that has an exclamation point because it's a fun one. So um, I'm going to get to that. Unless you got something, Jack, go for it. Yeah, let me make two brief comments. First, Newman is my least favorite postal worker. Oh, God. Well, I, 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 sometimes I wonder, <laughs> what the fuck, dude? Yeah, it's terrible, terrible postal worker. Uh, to that point, the release then, I think the thing we need as we, we move into this next paragraph is that last bit of the exclusion, right? What does the axiomatic give us in these exclusions? And it gives us, a, it maintains either a this or that scenario of the function or an appeal to the spot signifier, right? That's kind of the, the thing it enables. That's all I've got. All right, let's get to the next paragraph. It would seem that the genetic code points to a genic decoding. One need only grasp the decoding and deterritorialization functions in their own positivity, inasmuch as they imply a particular chain state that is metastable and distinct both from any axiomatic and from any code. The molecular chain is the form in which the genic unconscious, always remaining subject, reproduces itself. And as we have seen, that is the primary inspiration of psychoanalysis. 
It does not add a code to all those that are already known. The signifying chain of the unconscious, Newman, is not used to discover or decipher codes of desire, but to cause absolutely decoded flows of desire, libido, to circulate and to discover in desire that which scrambles all the codes and undoes all the territorialities. Is it true that Oedipus will restore psychoanalysis to the status of a simple code with a Oh, it is true that Oedipus will restore psychoanalysis to the status of a simple code with the familial territoriality and the signifier of castration. Worse yet, it will happen that psychoanalysis itself wants to act as an axiomatic, which is the famous turning point where it no longer even relates to the familial scene, but solely to the psychoanalytic scene that supposedly answers for its own truth, and to the psychoanalytic operation that supposedly answers for its own success the couch as an axiomatized earth, the axiomatic of the cure as a successful castration. But by recoding or axiomatizing the flows of desire in this way, psychoanalysis makes a molar use of the signifying chain that results in a misappreciation of all the syntheses of the unconscious. That's a very good paragraph breaking down their critique of all of that. I really like that a lot. I forgot that paragraph's in here. This is like, I'm saving this one. Bookmarked, highlighted. That's a great paragraph. All right, please, uh, questions, anyone? So we sit there and we have the signifying chain of the uncommon, of, of, of the unconscious, um, but Newman. And it's not used to discover decipher codes of libido, but to cause absolutely decoded flows of desire to circulate and discover in desire that which scrambles all the codes and undoes the territorialities. This is uh, that setup. It, the critique would be, it is true that Oedipus will restore psychoanalysis to the status of simple code with familial territoriality and the signifier of castration, but it'll happen that psychoanalysis itself wants to act as an axiomatic, which is the famous turning point where it no longer even relates to a familial scene, but solely to the psychoanalytic scene that supposedly answers for its own truth. Um, early on, and they've referred to this moment a few times, I, I think it's the best example of what they mean here by psychoanalysis referring to itself versus the familial scene. Uh, it was at one point very much about breaking down family and having that discussion. The movement it made and is, is to becoming its own sort of network of signification, its own axiomatic. The example of that that they give that I adore is the prehistorical cultures prior to the written word, uh, where the one culture is a slave uh, to the other one, and they have a big sign and the letter A. Letter A means water to the superior, the, the race that owns the, the countrymen, and they're literate. And one of the poor uh, illiterate walks by and goes, well, what's that? And he points at the sign. And the man goes, oh, that, that's water. This changes that man's relationship to that letter and to water and to kind of everything. Because, well, at one point, in theory... I would just immediately think of or have the ideogram or, or scratch out or have the sound that would be the meaning of water that meant it quite directly. In this moment of someone saying, that letter, that sketch, that's actually water. That's different. Suddenly you have this disconnected, it's not actually water, now I have signification, now I have a symbol. And this shift is what starts to happen through sort of uh, it, it, the ripple effects throughout the rest of history are pretty significant, not just with the written word, but in general, how meaning is generated in the social field and the meta stories and the, 
the the social everything at large, because we start getting into these things that um, capital, which just was money at one point, which just was used for me to buy stuff at the market and that back and forth. Now it's so deeply disconnected from any idea of the market. You're free to go look at um, a handful of wonderful books about the hyper-financialization where it doesn't even matter if a business is failing um, somehow. Uh, Tesla sells the least amount of cars of any of the major automakers is worth 40 times as much. Like there's, there's silliness and disconnections that are happening. This is that same mentality. Oedipus it, and psychoanalysis was supposed to restore it. It's great. But the problem is now we're at the point where psychoanalysis is now divorced from the original familial scene that it was trying to break down, that Freud was trying to break down. But now it is solely the psychoanalytic scene that supposedly answers for its own truth and to the psychoanalytic operation that answers for its own success. It takes credit. It falls back on everything that is possible. The the couch is the axiomatized earth, the axiomatic of the cure as successful castration, the double bind that comes with, well, are you going to be cured? Uh, you don't want to be fucked up forever, do you? Um, do you want me to fuck you up forever? Or do you just want to be fucked up forever? This setup that axiomatization plays within capital and how it operates because it, it does all of this is, again, um, they've been going through this through this entire book, but we're at that point where they're really getting into here is where these, and they say early on, um, one need only grasp the decoding and deterritorialization functions in their own positivity, in as much as they imply a particular chain state that is metastable. We're starting to talk about what actually is happening and how these things actually function at that meta side and how these things sort of break down and work. And that'll be the end of my rant. I really love this paragraph. Was it Heidegger? who talked about like hermeneutics and the way that science or philosophies or like any kind of system of thought can kind of become closed in on itself. I, I don't know Heidegger enough, but I want to say yes. I want to say yes. Um, and that's uh, the last couple of paragraphs. I, I mean, are about that as well. This sort of natural, we have this decoded internal unconscious that gets sent through this BWO and then out the other side through axiomatization, even though everything is possible, it's put into some very specific uh, rails. And so we feel like anything is possible or to quote Zizek, which is a great line. It's a, anything is possible in capitalism, except for the end of capitalism. Um, that sort of setup and how that plays is really fascinating because it's not really true that things are within very, very distinct lines and axiomatized codes, but how that happens and how that gets there is, is this really fascinating process. That's really important for us to know the, the, the cliches we don't realize we carry with us. I last time through, I'm very certain I brought up my favorite movie that gets into this, which is the trolls world tour. Um, and uh, I, will, I will die on this hill that Trolls World Tour is actually about this, ultimately. Um, Trolls World Tour is brilliant. So uh, it's a terrible film. Um, there's pop trolls. Justin Timberlake's one of them. They sing pop songs. Um, they think they're the only trolls on earth. They find out there's a bunch of others. They have all kinds of music. And we kind of go through a big montage of like hard techno, classical music, funk music, and metal. There's a bunch of different trolls. And... Uh, Story, 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 metal trolls are taking over the world. They're hard-coded as Nazis or communists, and the Americans are coded as the pop trolls, which is not a shock. 
Um, pop trolls save everyone. The, the movie ends fascinatingly. The, the, game, the goal of the metal trolls was to have everyone play only metal music. That's it. The pop trolls save everyone. And this, it ends with this big song, a series of songs, where they say, you can play anything. You should have the freedom to play. This is the actual end of the movie. I'm not making this up. This is why it applies here. You can play any music you want. You can do anything. And when we play together, that's the best music of all. That's our, our diversity, the hyper-liberal bullshit diversity of everyone coming together. Because the song they play, and all the songs, they do a funk song, they do a metal song, they do a fucking classical, all that. But they all are pop music. That's the point here, and through all of this, that you have this freedom to play, oh my God, you have freedom, you can play anything, as long as it's pop music influenced. And it's kind of an amazing, unknowing thing uh, again, to the earlier thing I read where decolonization is the best bet for us to actually look at how we go about doing this. Um, this is how American colonialism works. It's not so much that we go and we kill everybody and we make them all white. We're happy to have lots of liberalized cultures where, oh, no, you're included. Well, I mean, to a point, and then we don't really care about you. And really, we're going to just sort of infect your culture with KFC, Burger King, and our music. But you're totally free to do anything, which is true, but you're not. Because the nature of that inclusive disjunction is everything forms into that sort of setup. They may have their own logical realities, but as they sort of merge, they become this almost warm paste of a society and a culture that underneath it all is ultimately just goddamn Trolls World Tour. So 100%, I am halfway through that video essay I've been working on for a fucking year. I need to finish that. It's a really fascinating, terrible film. Um, but it's a really, I think, appropriate here because that's the line they're talking about here. It's, By recording or axiomatizing the flows of desire in this way, psychoanalysis makes a molar use of the signifying chain that results in a misappreciation of all the syntheses of the unconscious. Because it does this, all of these syntheses of the unconscious get taken away. This chain comes, is, is, is utilized and it's pulled out. And this, this cure for a successful castration happens. And it's awful. Um, it's, is bad. That's my rant. I'll stop for a second. Let someone else talk. So I, I know we're not really talking about a thousand plateaus, but there is a really interesting connection that I'm seeing from what you're talking about in the faciality chapter. Um, oh, God, yeah. the, they say like the face of the face of Christ is the, is, is the face that all of their faces are judged by basically. And I think that's happening in a very similar process that you're describing. It, it is that it's, 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 we have this sort of global, we might call even hypernormative idea of things, but it, it works more insidiously than just normativity because that idea is sort of still playing into the Again, uh, the toxically liberal idea of diversity where everyone can be different within the way that things work in our society. And, I, and it plays very much into that. Faciality is a great section from that. That's v- I mean, there's, there's other ones too, but faciality is very much about this sort, of men- this sort of reality of how, again, you're completely free, but you're fucking totally not. And we all know that. And everyone kind of knows that, but we're free to have 90 different types of uh, Reese's peanut butter cups 
Like there's like 42 different kinds of peanut butter cups. Did you guys know that? Like, dude, come on. That's freedom. It's very Zizekian, I think. <laughs> and I, I, again, I think Zizek would actually have loved to lose if he probably actually read it. Um, it's, it's a fascinating setup. Um, and we'll get into more of that. Any, anything else on this paragraph? Because the next one is a lot. The next is a lot. Ugh. The next is the rest of this section, this uh, reading, I think. Yeah, I'll offer something. Um, it's a slightly different way of going about it, uh, more through like traditional psychoanalysis. Um, but I think I might actually be able to play on some of your 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 your, your troll movie uh, references. Uh, for reference, my I think your troll movie is my B movie. That's how I kind of feel about the the Seinfeld flick. Um, Anyways, in terms of a fascinatingly bad movie, right? Um, anyways, I kind of read this as a critique of transference. Um, and it's a critique of transference to me insofar as, like, what does psychoanalysis do through transference, right? What's, what, what's the happening there? What's kind of the process? And I see them trying to say, the unconscious in its self-production and its auto-production relies on the inclusive disjunctions. So yeah, that's a big, big statement in terms of like those, um, those breakthrough aspects, those releasing aspects we were just talking about in terms of the escape, um, but also in terms of like what the, why the inclusivity is so critical. Right, why that disjunction is so critical when you kind of have that mixture um, going all the way back to 1.1, right? Uh, the mouth and its capacity to shit uh, and its capacity to, to eat, right? And the inclusivity of those two functions as opposed to the hard line, um, it either eats or it shits, or if it does any of that, uh, it does so in reference to a larger signifier, which is usually the phallus, right? So nine times out of ten. Um, so the thing about like where they where they start going into um, what does psychoanalysis do here, right? So if the unconscious relies on the inclusive disjunction to, to um, produce itself, right? I see them kind of looking at psychoanalysis to say what does the excluded disjunction do in terms of production, right? Uh, you know, we talked about like the problem of production and reproduction. Uh, that psychoanalysis um, kind of messes up. And I think it was two sections ago. And so the point I'm, I'm getting at here is in terms of the transference, right? They highlight, uh, D&G highlight uh, the familial and the, uh, I almost said the office, but I guess it's more of the therapy room. <laughs> uh, but yeah, right. So worse yet, it will happen that psychoanalysis itself wants to act as an axiomatic which is the famous turning point where it no longer even relates to the familial scene, but solely to the psychoanalytic scene that supposedly answers for its own truth and the psychoanalytic operation that supposedly answers for its own success. The coach is, I'm sorry, the couch as an axiomatized earth, a lot of Freudian slips today. The couch is an axiomatized earth. The axiomatic of the so-called cure is a successful castration. And so I think what they're kind of getting at here is how does psychoanalysis constitute itself in such a way it does? And I think the point is that 
the exclusive disjunction facilitates a transference, right? Which classically is like, you've got these problems and we can understand them in relation to like, for instance, you wanting to, you know, transgress your father and obtain the thing you, you can't have, but you want, but the father stops you from having, which is kind of like the mother, right? And so you kind of transfer that on to um, the analyst by way of projection, right? Not supposed to help you work through it, right? This is kind of like the a basic outline of one possible so-called cure. And I think that's the the thing I'm taking out of here. If I were to apply that to the troll movie, the exclusive disjunction to me would be that it's either metal or it's funk, right? Um, I think the thing there would be that if you start getting to a point where, you know, metal is what funk isn't. Uh, you start getting into this very clear issue of the exclusive disjunction. Or, and I kind of like the way you put that, Brutz, um, if the condition for inclusion is uh, pop music, right? So metal and all this stuff is defined through, punk, uh, through pop, that does perhaps risk a, um, a transcendent signifier. That does perhaps risk a code. Obviously, in logic of sense, I'm not to lose talks about uh, pop art so you know i think of warhol when he talks about that so it doesn't have to be that way but i think in terms of like what, what you're trying to express there but so i think that might be where you can kind of work out those two different risks well, we're talking about also though um through n none of these things on their own are necessarily good bad or whatever it's, it's where they're at in the process and how and so if specifically we're talking about uh, either really exclusive or inclusive disjunction that's ultimately propagated through an axiomatic doesn't even matter. Like, like this is where we start getting at the, the reason for things, uh, the underlying axiomatic that sort of uh, envelops us and, and controls us that we don't really know why we believe what we do. Um, and there's a lot of examples of this uh, in just general American sort of civil society and liberal beliefs. It's not wild for me to say, these things, but there's a lot in conservatism too. But the demand of having these things pass through those is what we're talking about. And that ultimately it's not so much that they become this infinite space of where anyone can play, but because they're filtered through this axiomatic of this is what music is in the troll movie, or this is what blank is, or this is what water is. Suddenly that thing washes over all of, all of the rest of meaning. Because again, the BWO, the network of chains that is how meaning is processed is played with as much going in as it is coming out. And this setup is where we start having this really fucked up back and forth. And I'm going to make you, uh, I'm going to give the last 10 minutes of this. We'll end a little early. I'm going to make you watch the last scene. So you know what I'm talking about. It's wild how they do this. It's kind of funny, but um, I do think um, I want to get into the next part because we start talking about the BWO as the model of death. And I think it's in line with what we're talking about here as well. Uh, any last questions on this before I move on to the next? All right. Just remind me when we watch that movie to talk about transference. Otherwise, I'll probably forget. <laughs> I, I, I'll do my best. The body without organs is the model of death. As the authors of horror stories have understood so well, it is not death that serves as the model for catatonia. It is catatonic schizophrenia that gives its model to death. Zero intensity. The death model appears when the body without organs repels the organs and lays them aside. 
no mouth, no tongue, no teeth, to the point of self-mutilation, to the point of suicide. Yet there is no real opposition between the body without organs and the organs as partial objects. The only real opposition is to the molar organism that is their common enemy. In the desiring machine, one sees the same catatonic inspired by the immobile motor forces Motor, motor that forces him to put aside his organs, to immobilize them, to silence them, but also impelled by the working parts that work in an autonomous or stereotyped fashion to reactivate the organs, to reanimate them with local movements. It is a question of different parts of the machine, different and coexisting, different in their very coexistence. Hence, it is absurd to speak of a death desire that would presumably be in qualitative opposition to life desires. Death is not desired. There is only death that desires by virtue of the body without organs or the immobile motor. And there is also life that desires by virtue of the working organs. There we do not have two desires, but two parts, two kinds of desiring machine parts in the dispersion of the machine itself. And yet the problem persists. How can all that function together? For it is not yet a functioning but solely the non-structural condition of a molecular functioning. The functioning appears when the motor, under the preceding conditions, i.e. without ceasing to be immobile and without forming an organism, attracts the organs to the body without organs and appropriates them for itself in the apparent objective movement. Repulsion is the condition of the machine's functioning, but attraction is the functioning itself. That the functioning depends on repulsion is clear to us, inasmuch as it all works only by breaking down. One is then able to say what this running or this functioning consists of. In the cycle of the desiring machine, it is a matter of constantly translating, constantly converting the death model into something else altogether, which is the experience of death, converting the death that rises from within, in the body without organs, and to the death that comes from without, on the body without organs. Transference. This is a hell of a one. Uh, anyone want to try? Jack, Doug? Uh, yeah, I can give it a shot. Please do. Uh, I'm going to get water. I'll be right back. Always appreciate the transference shot, right? That's why we all come to these things. Um, no, hold on a second. Did I? Here we go. Okay, so as I was going through it, I was trying to kind of take some notes on this. Um, so, I mean, right, classically, there's the, the death drive and the, 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 um, the pleasure drive. Uh, there's Thanos and Eros, I guess, is the easy way to say it, right? It's usually like the opposition of death to life. The thing I think they're trying to do here is, right, there's a point of an inclusive disjunction that I think they're trying to say is necessary for how the BWO um, will function in terms of how distribution works, which is you know, in a simple way of saying like, how is the BWO going to put things to function as they shall in terms of the disjunction, right? And I see them trying to pick up, um, you know, like when I read zero intensity, I'm thinking of what zero degrees Kelvin, right? Where you know the point isn't um, the point is that there is an intensity of zero degrees Kelvin, right? It's just not um, you know it's not the kind of intensity we're used to thinking of because it's 
you know, it's it's not that kind of normal warmth. Um, kind of the, one of the interesting things about it, it because it is still nevertheless an intensity. It's not um, a kind of nothingness so much as it's a um, something else to be considered on its own terms. So the, the point I see them making then is that if the BWO does have this intensity, right, this helps explain why it can do what it's going to do. Uh, namely the disjunction. So in the first synthesis, right, there's the repulsion. Well, when when the first and second syntheses connect, there's the repulsion and the attraction or the miraculation, right? Uh, otherwise, the paranoiac and the schizophrenic. Uh, I, I tend to think of them kind of like through investments, right, cathexis. And so I think the basic point they're making there is that um, the BWO in doing so, right, there is a, a way in which the paranoiac investment here, that the kind of repulsion is through the intensity of the BWO, just like the miraculating function. So in this way, it's not a hardline exclusive um, disjunction, right? It's not to say that the organs that um, are repelled um, are done so through the death drive. Otherwise, they're done, you know, they miraculate through the... Uh, through arrows, right? Through desire. I think the point they're making is that the, you know, the substance is the same, primarily because the BWO, um, as much as, you know, desire is desiring, death is desiring, right? So there's not really um, something outside of that. I think is the easy way to say it. They're not appealing to something uh, beyond. Uh, instead, I think what they're trying to say is that. As the BWO miraculates, it also repels. And in doing so, this is still part of, I think, a use of an inclusive uh, disjunctive network. And where I think you can kind of start to highlight how it's doing that, right? Because we're just trying to lay out how this stuff works before we get into any given scenario where we can start laying out functions. You know, where they're laying out this um, this point is that it's not so much about a structure of how this works. I think it's more simply, um, more simply that how can the BWO do all these things? And part of the answer for that is the tension between that limit of the BWO and the socius, right? Because this is part of how they're explaining the um, the breakthrough and why that can function the way it can function. I, I do think it's worth going back a little bit to, I believe, the first section of the entire book, maybe like four or five pages in, uh, where they talk about how um, the machines themselves, desiring machines, stop dead and set free the unorganized mass of flows they once served to articulate. Um, when we start talking about the death instinct in, in D&G and, and their writing, which is what they're getting at here very much, and they're, they're deeply critical of it as well, um, we're talking as we, as the first chapter really deeply went into a second as well, um, their version of the death instinct, which is ultimately anti-production. Um, they, they use that term a lot more. This idea that um, the BWO slides between uh, connections in order to sort of stop them and to stop the underlying uh, animal nature of sort of fixation and to stop the, the repeated constancy of that. Uh, Deleuze talks about that in his A to Z as well, that it's a freeing thing 
that we, we break and it enables us to have new connections. At some point, uh, just repetition gets boring and we go do another thing or it happens sooner than that. This, the breaking of the machine and the stopping of it, is it working? It's, it's I think, the big reason I think they move away from saying death instinct uh, or talking about that much more to uh, discussing it, as I said, anti-production and that kind of thing because we're talking about the sort of desexualization of desire by uh, neutralizing these connections and the surface that does that and plays is ultimately the BWO. And that's, that's what we're getting at here. I think pretty heavily. This is getting into a thousand plateaus again, but they talk a bit about how like suicidal ideation is basically a desire to destratify entirely and just be done with kind of the systems that we're surrounded with. I, I've always loved that way of looking at it. I think it's a dark way of looking at it, but also a kind of, um, I don't know, accurate in personal experience. There's a, there's an interesting thing, this, 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 this demand that we constantly have. And, and this is deeply important, this paragraph, because one of the things that's going to be happening to what they aren't calling the death instinct, but instead anti-production and death in general is how these things, um, have shifted over time. And they talked about it early on uh, also in chapter three, that in the uh, prehistoric, that death was more of an instinct rather than a threat of life. We didn't really think of it like that. Um, and they sort of take from Bataille pretty heavily on that too. Bataille wrote extensively on prehistoric cultures that played uh, in that way. Um, the uh, Then uh, under the despotic, death became a thing that could be handed down to us, which was different. And then in capital, um, death is something that's kind of omnipresent and never leaves us. Um, they, if you do the wrong things, it's entirely possible you will be homeless and die. Like tomorrow, have fun. Like just, just by screwing up a few things, you could die. Not like bad things either. Like just being shitty with keeping books, forgetting to pay rent, forgetting to like do things. Now you have no money and, like the threat's there and it's omnipresent and it's always going. And so death has shifted over time as well, because again, our relationship to these things have, and again, how anti-production operates within these productive uh, social uh, realities and the socii uh, also has changed. And so as we start talking and getting a little bit further in this, the, the, the couple of things to sort of take from here is that they are not, big fans of I, how I read this. Um, th there isn't a life force and death or force that we are constantly fighting. Um, there is no death instinct or life instinct. That's not really how it works as a thing, but instead that uh, desiring machines by nature have both the life force and death force in them in the fact that they connect and disconnect. And the BWO, which is the disconnection and the surface that is then recording of that that's constantly being made, these are the sort of uh, procedural realities of our experience and our lived experience. But it's not like these forces. Um, the second thing to sort of realize is that um, death itself is not something that people desire. It's a big thing they say here, and it's really important to a lot of stuff in uh, a lot of their other writings, but for sure here and a lot in ATP. Um, but the line here, death is not desired. There is only death that desires by virtue of the BWO or the immobile motor. 
There is life that desires by virtue of the working organs. There we do not have two desires, but two parts, two kinds of desiring machine parts in the dispersion of the machine itself. This machine works and it isn't necessarily functioning, but it, like it, at this point, the functioning appears when the motor under the preceding conditions, without ceasing to be immobile, without forming an organism, attracts the organs to the body without organs, appropriates them for itself in the apparent objective movement. Repulsion is the condition of the machine's functioning, but attraction is the functioning, functioning itself. This, this is how every machine works. It's this, this on-off, 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 death life, death life, connect, disconnect thing, as they've talked about through all the syntheses. And so it's not so much this constant flow of death drive or every human ultimately just wants to die, but instead it's much deeper than that and actually death that desires things just as desire desires. Sexual desire wants to connect. Death wants to disconnect. That's the closest you get. But we don't desire death. We don't have a subjectivity that does that. Death wants. That's the difference. And the last uh, sentence I really like, uh, ultimately, converting the death that rises from within, in the body without organs, into the death that comes from without, on the body without organs. That shift, as they're talking, we'll be getting kind of into the next paragraph, but that's the sentence um, worth saying before we continue. I want to do the next paragraph. Oh, God. Will we have time? Yeah, we have time. Let's do it. Doug, go for it. Yeah, I have a quick question, if anyone has any uh, understanding of a particular line in here. So in the sentence in the middle, in the desiring machine, one sees the same catatonic inspired, uh, blah, 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 but also impelled by the working parts that work in an autonomous or stereotyped fashion. Autonomous there makes sense to me that they sort of have to be working on their own amongst this, uh, you know, BWO inspired death. But what is stereotyped talking about? Just repetition, or that would make sense. It, it, yeah, I would. I would. I would even um, with an edge to that. Um, within guidelines, the 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 stereotyped action of a machine that it's presuming what it needs to do almost. Um, that again, repetition is definitely habitual for sure. Would be within that. I think. I wonder if stereotyped is the word that they originally used. Yeah, I like that. That's a good one, Tracy. I like that. It's a, it is repetition with that edge of like habitual presumption. Because that's the, I mean, that's, again, when we get into a lot of this, there's, it's one of the things they're kind of rallying against is this idea of um, the, the living life within the cliches we don't know we have. And that would be, to me, the very definition of the stereotype fashion, the, the machine doing the thing it's, stere it's cliched to do to reanimate the organs within local movements. Like not every desiring machine is a schizo running around, skating around. Like that's not how, like it's, we're not made of billions of little tiny schizos. Like there's a lot of drive towards repetition for sure. Right? Isn't that, that's how I'm reading that. Mm-hmm. Should I see? Jack? Yeah, to me at least. All right, good. I have to ask. I like, I like knowing that I'm not way off.
Cool. All right. <clears throat> but it seems that things are becoming very obscure. For what is this distinction between the experience of death and the model of death? Here again, is it a death desire, a being for death? Or rather, an investment of death, even if speculative? None of the above. The experience of death is the most common of occurrences in the unconscious, precisely because it occurs in life and for life, in every passage or becoming, in every intensity as passage or becoming. It is in the very nature of every intensity to invest within itself the zero intensity starting from which it is produced in one moment as that which grows or diminishes according to an infinity of degrees. As Klesowski noted, an afflux is necessary merely to signify the absence of intensity. We have attempted to show in this respect how the relations of attraction and repulsion produced such states, sensations, and emotions, which imply a new energetic conversion and form the third kind of synthesis, the synthesis of conjunction. One might say that the unconscious as a real subject has scattered an apparent residual and nomadic subject around the entire compass of its cycle, a subject that passes by way of all the becomings corresponding to the included disjunctions. The last part of the desiring machine, the adjacent part, these intense becomings and feelings, these intense, intensive emotions feed deliriums and hallucinations. But in themselves, these intensive emotions are closest to the matter whose zero degree they invest in itself. They control the unconscious experience of death insofar as death is what is felt in every feeling, what never ceases and never finishes happening in every becoming, in the becoming another sex, in the becoming God, the becoming a race, etc., forming zones of intensity on the body without organs. Every intensity controls within its own life the experience of death and envelops it. And it is doubtless the case that every intensity is extinguished at the end, that every becoming itself becomes a becoming death. Death then does actually happen. Maurice Blanchot distinguishes this twofold nature clearly, these two irreducible aspects of death. The one, according to which the apparent subject never ceases to live and travel as a one, one never stops and never has done with dying. And the, uh, the other, according to which this same subject fixed his eye, actually dies, which is to say it finally ceases to die since it ends up dying in the reality of a last instant that fixes it in this way as an eye, all the while undoing the intensity, carrying it back to the zero that envelops it. Um, 100% I cannot get away from logic of sense on this one. Just, it's literally the, it, this paragraph is almost word for word from logic of sense, which is something I didn't even notice last time through. I, I mean, he even quotes the same Blanchot quote, which is kind of amazing. Um, as he says in that, um, is the, the difficulty, it's porcelain and volcano. Um, Blanchot's two aspects of death, impersonal, never present, ungraspable, personal, present, authentic. Uh, these may be brought together by suicide, madness, drugs, or alcohol, but there's an illusion here that is joined together, that uh, what is joined together is different from what is extended. This 
the way we think of death in these two formats and how they play together and how they work against each other or even with each other, how we think of them. As they say here, one never stops and is never done with dying. You're free to actually think through the idea of talking about someone dying, how they can never die. Because they can never be done with dying. If they're dying, they have to have died and then they're not dying anymore. Words are funny that way, but there's a a timeless reality to what he's talking about it here. And his, his forms of time and logic of sense, the Bergsonian side of him, just shows through so hard here. It's, it's so great. Um, I'll stop because I really could ramble here because it's one of my favorite parts of logic of sense, but there you go. Speaking of Bergson, it is like, honest to God, I said Bergson three times and you appeared, Lou. That's fucked up. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I have six cents for that. That's wild. Uh, we're discussing from Logic of Sense, uh, well, through AO. Um, shows twofold nature of death. Uh, Deleuze talks about it in a few sections, but the idea of death as event, sort of to restate, um, uh, death is an exemplary event. Uh, because the event is evaluated by the present moment of its actualization in bodies, uh, realized and accomplished. Death is definite and grounded in my body, but the event in itself has only the present of the mobile instant neutral, always dividing into past and future, forming a counteractualization impossible to realize. Death itself is incorporeal, infinitive, impersonal. Every event is an actualization and counteractualization. And this is Blanchot's two versions of death. We have death, the incorporeal, but also the deeply grounded that is sort of the two aspects. This feels, uh, and we talked about this early on, that there's a very, uh, uh, there's an inspiration around how time operates here and how time plays in different ways that feels deeply Bergsonian, Bergsonism to me. Uh, but you know the Bergy better than I do, so that's kind of hilarious timing. Um, we were kind of talking through that. Is that a fair, Jack, is Jack, Doug, is that good? So Luke can ramble and respond or not at all if he doesn't want to. Yeah, that was what we just, what you just said before. All right. So am I nuts, Lou? Uh, so, so the event, as I, as far as I understand it, I still haven't finished reading logic of sense definitely has the Bergsonian ties. I, I don't know about the death thing, like Bergson has... No, 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 no. It's, it's not so much the death thing. It's um, the, the nature of the... Um, how to put... Um, let me reread a little bit of this section, and I'll let you just talk about what you think is related to something Bergson. Um, one might say that the unconscious as a real subject has scattered an apparent residual and nomadic subject around the entire compass of its cycle, a subject that passes by way of all the becomings corresponding to the included disjunctions, the last part of the desiring machine, the adjacent part. These intense becomings and feelings, these intensive emotions, feed deliriums and hallucinations, but in themselves, these intensive emotions are closest to the matter whose zero degree they invest in itself. They control the unconscious experience of death insofar as death is what is felt in every feeling, what never ceases and never finishes happening in every becoming, in the becoming another sex, becoming God, becoming a race. 
forming zones of intensity on the body without organ. Okay, so, so, so this actually, like, if, if I wanted to um, go deep on the Bergson end, this actually might be able to connect the Bergsonian role of death with what Deleuze is talking about. Because, um, like, we all know, like, Bergson is like this, this, this huge Catholicism, mysticism fanboy. And he, he kind of has this undercurrent of, of developing, um, a, 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 a notion of God uh, and of of death that's not very explicit at at, at uh, a, a lot of the time but towards the the last things that he wrote uh, the last essays that he wrote about his 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 work in general that comes through a bit more and um in in meta and memory it comes through in how he conceptualizes acting um and 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 how he he how he uh, how he conceptualizes acting and thinking, specifically how he connects acting to a notion of attention to life, and thinking as a dissolution of this, um, of of this attention, and um, specifically the con like um, the the necess necessity of being able to not act for consciousness so so the the stalling of action basically this is loosening loosening the attention to life um to to enable actually creative action to enable um to enable um memory to enter the present basically um because because of that is what constitutes creative action right that memory can 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 um co can become effective again um if we are in pure in in basically pure present its mechanism because um everything is determined um the 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 um specific thing about creative action is that the past can become active so that what uh, the past is usually defined as that what can no longer act but um in creative action it can become effective again so the interesting thing about that that um that link um there is that um this operation of thinking and leaping into the past that is at the base of creative action um productive action if you want like no well non-mechanistic action um is kind of associated with death right it is, is because it is and bergson doesn't talk about it in these terms and that's kind of the catholicism coming in hmm. but, um, but um he it's it's a disconnection from life right like it's it's um it's disconnecting from from the from the um from the present it's it's um turning away from the act from the uh, necessities of life from the from the from the quasi mechanism from 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 being determined um towards that what can no longer act what seems to be um 
what seems to be irrelevant. And the interesting bit then is that in one of his last essays, in the introductory essay to um, The Creative Mind, he actually phrases the question of the immortal soul in those terms. He, he, he basically um, re reframes death as the, as the complete dissolution of the attention to life, so, so losing the connection to, uh, um, the, to, to the material process. So, um, and Le Leonard Lawler actually picks that up in in uh, in book um, the challenge of Bergsonism and talks about that a bit. He he, he develops um, a Bergsonian notion of sense in that book that actually resonates a bit uh, quite well with with a logical sense, I think. And and uh, his point is there that in in positing this leap into memory in in at the base of every action, um, Bergson basically posits a leap into, well, a, an, an other, an, an, a kind of um, leap towards death or, or like an affirming death at the base of, of action. But then at the same time, you, you need to have this background of this Catholicism where this, um, where when we talk about memory, right, um, memory is is at the same time then the well memory the past it is um pure creativity as it as it appears when we talk about the elan vital um and it is um connected to death right um death in that sense needs to be understood as um as well basically god so so for bergson there is there it's it's um being towards death is Basically being towards, basically being towards um, God. Well, and, but that's I would just real quick because I, 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 this is absolutely what I think. Again, I think Toulouse is taking that and he's writing it in his own way. He's got the line here: uh, every intensity controls within its own life the experience of death and envelops it. And it is doubtless the case that every intensity is extinguished at the end; that every becoming itself becomes a becoming death. That, I mean, that feels in line. Yeah, yeah, that's that's why why I'm riffing on it, right? Like, I don't actually have the text of of anti Oedipus right in front of me right now. So you, you literally do if you if you watch my stream right now. Ah, okay, but but I'm but like I'm just no, it's trying. Okay, I I mostly I just want like top line thoughts because it just happened to be I mentioned I I mentioned Bergson often and usually it doesn't summon you, so I wanted to make sure when you were summoned that I utilized it. The other thing that I just remembered is um, that... Um, is it, regardless, it, I love this paragraph quite a bit. Um, again, um, Noah had a question. I want to make sure we get a chance to sort of uh, go through, even though Noah left. Um, yeah, asking, so if a becoming itself is death, does that indicate it is approaching life? It seems as though a becoming is in between life and death. In the reading, it says that a becoming needs to be taken out of within the BWO and placed on the BWO. Does this mean that death passes through the BWO instead of being organized on it? There's a, a few things that I think are, are wrong about how this is phrased. Um, and then I think we can get to an answer because I, I think I just want to make sure we get the phrasing right. Um, it is not so much that death passes through the BWO instead of being organized on it. It's that uh, machines operate and machines play in a very particular way here. Um, the phrasing that they use 
um, in the previous pa passages, um, one is then able to say what this running or that functioning consists of, speaking of machines. In the cycle of the desire machine, it is a matter of constantly translating, constantly converting the death model into something else altogether, which is the experience of death. Converting the death that rises from within, in the body without organs, into the death that comes from without, on the body without organs. Um, I think there is a part of this phrasing, and I'd love anyone's thoughts on this. Their phrasing here is awkward because it makes... It, it does what I think Noah's doing here, which makes you go, oh, so the BWO is where the death lives. And it's like, sort of, but it's much more, uh, you could say also the, uh, the two regimes, converting death that rises from within, the death that rises from the molecular into the death that comes from without uh, the social. Uh, that's, that's how I would phrase it. Um, is that fair, Jack? Anyone else want to jump in? That's... Uh, because this is a tough one. Death, death in DNG is not an easy, easy thing. Well, uh, death, death is a becoming, right? It's a becoming of uh, of these machines. Uh, machines break or down. When machines break down, and so it's it's a natural process. It's it's part of the no, flow. No, no, no. JK, uh, if you if you you could say again. I apologize. My audio died. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, if, uh, you know, death is a becoming, it's within becoming, then it seems like a natural process of these machines, uh, you know, uh, every once in a while they break down and that would be what death is. It's just part of the natural flow of, of becoming, right? Yes. It, it, breaking down is functioning. Like that's the, that's, I mean, it's an underlying thing that they've talked about throughout this breaking down is functioning, uh, that it is how these machines work. It is the necessary part of how they operate. Um, and, and with that, it's, it's important to sort of think about death, not as a, um, oh, it's the end or whatever, or a drive towards sort of the extinction of passions, but instead how it interoperates, how it plays, because a machine that never disconnects, never dies, um, stays that machine forever. Um, the BWO freeing us from that, from that hyper repetitiveness that desire machines will happily sort of jump into death gives us that opportunity. Um, and it's the death within becoming that allows this, um, as, as I understand the phrasing, it's, uh, some really great, um, some really great phrasing that they have in here around it. Um, well, that's, uh, that's, uh, it's the same as, uh, in accordance with the, the repetition of difference. It's not the repetition of the same. So difference is and uh, is a kind of a death, right? So. Um. Death enables it. I, I I I would say that it's the disconnection, the breaking down of the machine is what enables the machine to connect to something else. Without that, it would just stay connected like a dog on a bone. If if you never pulled it off, a dog, uh, there's dumb dogs, dumb cats um, that that strangle themselves because they run and they just can't help it and they die because they don't understand, you know that they're fixated the 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 freedom and Deleuze talks about this the freedom man has is that we have this sort of break that happens in these machines we have a lot of them and all, we're talking about millions of machines we're not talking about one break that like oh i changed my mind but much more of a these machines that are surrounding me that make up the social structure that produces brooks's subjectivity the the situation that i'm in and everything that it is 
all of those machines are constantly breaking and restarting or connecting to something else and millions of them. And that process is the recording. That's that recording is what allows ultimately the BWO to exist uh, without a break. There's no recording that happens. Like that's the second part of the sen- It's the second part of the, the three syntheses. We need that disconnection with disconnection comes recording without disconnection, no recording. That's a problem. So we have that that allows this sort of different mentality, allows this to sort of this meta story to begin happening. The meta story that is the subjectivity produced that claims it's real, that is ultimately just the BWO produced via this mechanism. Maybe. That's uh, maybe saying it too shortly, but there you go. I suppose to try and take a stab at it off that. I think there's a couple pieces we need. Um, one of which is the absolute zero thing, right? Because I think. Kind of going about that back to that earlier point, right? Uh, absolute zero actually does some things, right? So it's not like a, not exactly like a paucity per se. It actually does stuff as an intensity. Um, and this is kind of the model for death, right? Is that absolute zero that is the BWL. Um, and then we talked a little bit about, like, as I'm reading it, right, there's kind of an a disjunction between life and death they're trying to work out here. And they're doing that by reference to the BWO and the partial objects, right? So it's really a nifty way because in doing so, they're, you know, you got first synthesis, second synthesis, and working that out before we ultimately get to the third synthesis here, right? Uh, which is where we start getting to this. That's kind of where they're opening up, right? This question of so how do we understand death then? And I think what they're trying to get at here is that because it's an inclusive disjunction, it's about the condition of the inclusive disjunction um, of life and death as opposed to um, simply death uh, contra life. And in doing that, right, I think where they start bringing this out more is the experience after they say what it's not, right, then they say kind of more what it is. The experience of death is the most common of occurrences in the unconscious, precisely because it occurs in life and for life, in every passage or becoming, and every intensity as passage or becoming. So every intensity involves uh, dying, right? It is, in the very, it is in the very nature of every intensity to invest within itself the zero intensity starting from which it is produced in one moment as that which as that which grows or diminishes according to an infinity of degrees as Klausowski noted and a flutz is necessary merely to signify the absence of intensity so i think the point there being that um whether whether the intensity grows or diminishes it does so through an investment of the bwo right um this this, uh, this reference to death, right? We have attempted to show in this respect how the relations of attraction and repulsion produce such states, sensations, and emotions, which imply a new energetic conversion and form the third kind of synthesis, the synthesis of conjunction. So the, the subjectivity, the consummation, consumption, right? The third part of the, the process of production relies on the, uh, it relies on a lot of things, but one of the things it relies on is this 
relationship of life and death on this disjunction of the two, because the intensities that will be consumed and consummated, um, you know, uh, have a mixture of the two things, right? It involves partial objects and, and the BWO, right? And the intensities rely on those two things. Uh, one might say the unconscious is a real subject is scattered and apparent residual nomadic subject around the entire compass of its cycle. A subject that passes by way of all the becomings corresponding to the included disjunctions. The last part of the desiring machine, the adjacent part. So this is just going into more about how the unconscious is producing this real subject, right? And is itself um, as that real subject, right? And obviously the cycle, so the cycle of production, I think is more or less what's there. These intense becomings and feelings, these intensive emotions feed deliriums and hallucinations. So once again, the I feel. But in themselves, these intensive emotions are closest to the matter whose zero degree they invest in, them, in itself. So right, they're doing things to the BWO and the BWO is doing things to them through an investment of, of death because death desires. I think that's kind of part of the key is death desires as opposed to Desire exists because of death, right? That's the difference between, I think, the inclusive disjunction and making death like a, a problematically transcendent signifier. Um, they control the unconscious experience of death insofar as death is what is felt in every feeling, what never ceases and never finishes happening and every becoming. And the becoming another sets, the becoming God, the becoming a race, etc., forming zones of intensity on the bodies without organs. Every intensity controls with it in its own life the experience of death and envelops it. And it is doubtless the case that every intensity is extinguished at the end, that every becoming itself becomes a becoming death. Such a neat way of saying it. But I think that's it, right, is that the intensities make reference to the investment of death and actually, however the intensities are going to affect the subject in its, in its consummation, right, it's going to do so involving, um, involving death. And it does that by reference to BWR, right, because of these zones and their uh, their intensive erection. Uh, it's probably a bad choice of birds. It's a, it's a, it's a probably. Um, I'm going to just make that uh, sound bite we use for other things. Um, my intensive erections. Is that the name of our podcast? Um, I'm going to go ahead and... The, uh, the DGQC cares. Um <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask any questions or comments on this because I do want to, we're now, we've passed the two hour mark. I try to be good to people's time because uh, I know we could just go on. Uh, is there anything left for anyone uh, on this? Uh, questions, comments, thoughts, please. Uh, it'd be great. Okay. Um, I think with that, I may slowly uh, close this out. Thank all of you for joining. If you want to stick around for two minutes, I'm going to play the end of this stupid, terrible Trolls movie, and you can see what I'm talking about, because you can. Mm -hmm.
It's like three minutes. You won't even believe how crisp it is. But with that, I'm going to let us go, and I will see you all next week as we continue 4.4. Thank you.